This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Seventeen Day had returned. No ray of light penetrated into the profundity of the cavern. It being high water, the entrance was closed by the sea, but the artificial light, which escaped in long streams from the skylights of the Nautilus, was as vivid as before, and the sheet of water shone around the floating vessel. An extreme exhaustion now overcame Captain Nemo, who had fallen back upon the divan. It was useless to contemplate removing him to Granite House, for he had expressed his wish to remain in the midst of those marvels of the Nautilus which millions could not have purchased, and to wait there for that death which was swiftly approaching. During a long interval of prostration, which rendered him almost unconscious, Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett attentively observed the condition of the dying man. It was apparent that his strength was gradually diminishing. That frame, once so robust, was now but the fragile tenement of a departing soul. All of life was concentrated in the heart and head. The engineer and reporter consulted in whispers. Was it possible to render any aid to the dying man? Might his life, if not saved, be prolonged for some days? He himself had said that no remedy could avail, and he awaited with tranquillity that death which had for him no terrors. "'We can do nothing,' said Gideon Spilett. "'But of what is he dying?' asked Pencroft. "'Life is simply fading out,' replied the reporter. "'Nevertheless,' said the sailor, "'if we move him into the open air and the light of the sun, he might perhaps recover.' "'No, Pencroft,' answered the engineer. "'It is useless to attempt it. Besides, Captain Nemo would never consent to leave his vessel.' He has lived for a dozen years on board the Nautilus, and on board the Nautilus he desires to die. Without doubt Captain Nemo heard Cyrus Harding's reply, for he raised himself slightly, and in a voice more feeble, but always intelligible. "'You are right, sir,' he said. "'I shall die here. It is my wish, and therefore I have a request to make of you.' Cyrus Harding and his companions had drawn near the divan, and now arranged the cushions in such a manner as to better support the dying man. They saw his eyes wander over all the marvels of this saloon, lighted by the electric rays which fell from the arabesques of the luminous ceiling. He surveyed, one after the other, the pictures hanging from the splendid tapestries of the partitions, the chef d'oeuvre of the Italian, Flemish, French, and Spanish masters, the statues of marble and bronze on their pedestals, the magnificent organ leaning against the after-partition, the aquarium in which bloomed the most wonderful productions of the sea, marine plants, zoophytes, chaplets of pearls of inestimable value, and finally his eyes rested on this device inscribed over the pediment of the museum the motto of the nautilus mobilis in mobile 
His glance seemed to rest fondly for the last time on these masterpieces of art and of nature, to which he had limited his horizon during a sojourn of so many years in the abysses of the sea. Cyrus Harding respected the captain's silence, and waited till he should speak. After some minutes, during which, doubtless, he passed in review his whole life, Captain Nemo turned to the colonists and said, "'You consider yourselves, gentlemen, under some obligations to me?' "'Captain, believe us that we would give our lives to prolong yours.' "'Promise, then,' continued Captain Nemo, "'to carry out my last wishes, and I shall be repaid for all I have done for you.' "'We promise.' said Cyrus Harding, and by this promise he bound both himself and his companions. "'Gentlemen,' resumed the captain, "'to-morrow I shall be dead.' Herbert was about to utter an exclamation, but a sign from the captain arrested him. "'To-morrow I shall die, and I desire no other tomb than the Nautilus. It is my grave.' All my friends repose in the depths of the ocean. Their resting-place shall be mine." These words were received with profound silence. "'Pay attention to my wishes,' he continued. "'The Nautilus is imprisoned in this grotto, the entrance of which is blocked up. But although egress is impossible, the vessel may at least sink in the abyss, and there bury my remains." The colonists listened reverently to the words of the dying man. "'Tomorrow, after my death, Mr. Harding,' continued the captain, "'yourself and companions will leave the Nautilus, for all the treasures it contains must perish with me. One token alone will remain of you of Prince Dakar, with whose history you are now acquainted.' That coffer yonder contains diamonds of the value of many millions, most of them mementos of the time when, husband and father, I thought happiness possible for me, and a collection of pearls gathered by my friends and myself in the depths of the ocean. Of this treasure, at a future day, you may make good use. In the hands of such men as yourself and your comrades, Captain Harding, money will never be a source of danger. From on high I shall still participate in your enterprises, and I fear not, but that they will prosper." After a few moments' repose, necessitated by his extreme weakness, Captain Nemo continued, "'Tomorrow you will take the coffer, you will leave the saloon, of which you will close the door. Then you will ascend on to the deck of the Nautilus, and you will lower the main hatch so as entirely to close the vessel. "'It shall be done, Captain,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'Good. You will then embark in the canoe which brought you hither. But before leaving the Nautilus, go to the stern, and there open two large stopcocks, which you will find upon the water-line.' the water will penetrate into the reservoirs, and the Nautilus will gradually sink beneath the water, to repose at the bottom of the abyss." And comprehending a gesture of Cyrus Harding, the captain added, "'Fear nothing. 
you will but bury a corpse. Neither Cyrus Harding nor his companions ventured to offer any observation to Captain Nemo. He had expressed his last wishes, and they had nothing to do but to conform to them. "'I have your promise, gentlemen,' added Captain Nemo. "'You have, Captain,' replied the engineer. The captain thanked the colonists by a sign, and requested them to leave him for some hours. Gideon Spilett wished to remain near him, in the event of a crisis coming on, but the dying man refused, saying, "'I shall live until to-morrow, sir.' All left the saloon, passed through the library and the dining-room, and arrived forward in the machine-room where the electrical apparatus was established, which supplied not only heat and light, but the mechanical power of the Nautilus. The Nautilus was a masterpiece containing masterpieces within itself, and the engineer was struck with astonishment. The colonists mounted the platform, which rose seven or eight feet above the water. There they beheld a thick glass lenticular covering, which protected a kind of large eye, from which flashed forth light. Behind this eye was apparently a cabin containing the wheels of the rudder, and in which was stationed the helmsman when he navigated the Nautilus over the bed of the ocean, which the electric rays would evidently light up to a considerable distance. Cyrus Harding and his companions remained for a time silent, for they were vividly impressed by what they had just seen and heard, and their hearts were deeply touched by the thought that he whose arm had so often aided them the protector whom they had known but a few hours, was at the point of death. Whatever might be the judgment pronounced by posterity upon the events of this, so to speak, extra-human existence, the character of Prince Dakar would ever remain as one of those whose memory time can never efface. "'What a man!' said Pencroft. "'Is it possible that he can have lived at the bottom of the sea?' and it seems to me that perhaps he has not found peace there any more than elsewhere. The Nautilus, observed Ayrton, might have enabled us to leave Lincoln Island and reach some inhabited country. Good heavens! exclaimed Pencroft. I, for one, would never risk myself in such a craft. To sail on the seas, good, but under the seas, never. I believe, Pencroft, answered the reporter, that the navigation of a submarine vessel such as the Nautilus ought to be very easy, and that we should soon become accustomed to it. There would be no storms, no lee-shore to fear. At some feet beneath the surface the waters of the ocean are as calm as those of a lake. "'That may be,' replied the sailor. "'But I prefer a gale of wind on board a well-found craft. A vessel is built to sail on the sea and not beneath it. "'My friends,' said the engineer, "'it is useless, at any rate as regards the Nautilus, to discuss the question of submarine vessels. The Nautilus is not ours, and we have not the right to dispose of it. Moreover, we could in no case avail ourselves of it. Independently of the fact that it would be impossible to get it out of this cavern, whose entrance is now closed by the uprising of the basaltic rocks, Captain Nemo's wish is that it shall be buried with him. His wish is our law, and we will fulfill it. After a somewhat prolonged conversation, 
Cyrus Harding and his companions again descended to the interior of the Nautilus. There they took some refreshment and returned to the saloon. Captain Nemo had somewhat rallied from the prostration which had overcome him, and his eyes shone with their wonted fire. A faint smile even curled his lips. The colonists drew around him. "'Gentlemen,' said the captain, "'you are brave and honest men. You have devoted yourself to the common weal. Often have I observed your conduct. I have esteemed you. I esteem you still.' Your hand, Mr. Harding." Cyrus Harding gave his hand to the captain, who clasped it affectionately. "'It is well,' he murmured. He resumed. "'But enough of myself. I have to speak concerning yourselves, and this Lincoln Island, upon which you have taken refuge. You now desire to leave it?' "'To return, Captain,' answered Pencroft quickly. "'To return, Pencroft?' said the captain, with a smile. I know it is true your love for this island. You have helped to make it what it now is, and it seems to you a paradise. Our project, Captain, interposed Cyrus Harding, is to annex it to the United States, and to establish for our shipping a port so fortunately situated in this part of the Pacific. Your thoughts are with your country, gentlemen, continued the captain. Your toils are for her prosperity and glory. You are right. One's native land. There should one live. There die. And I, I die far from all I loved. You have some last wish to transmit, said the engineer with emotion, some souvenir to send to those friends you have left in the mountains of India. No, Captain Harding, no friends remain to me. I am the last of my race, and to all whom I have known I have long been as are the dead. But to return to yourselves. Solitude, isolation, are painful things, and beyond human endurance. I die of having thought it possible to live alone. You should, therefore, dare all in the attempt to leave Lincoln Island, and see once more the land of your birth. I am aware that those wretches have destroyed the vessel you have built." "'We propose to construct a vessel,' said Gideon Spilett, "'sufficiently large to convey us to the nearest land. But if we should succeed, sooner or later we shall return to Lincoln Island. We are attached to it by too many recollections ever to forget it.' "'It is here that we have known Captain Nemo,' said Cyrus Harding. "'It is here only that we can make our home added Herbert. "'And here shall I sleep the sleep of eternity, if,' replied the captain. He paused for a moment, and instead of completing the sentence, said simply, "'Mr. Harding, I wish to speak with you alone.' The engineer's companions, respecting the wish, retired. Cyrus Harding remained but a few minutes alone with Captain Nemo and soon recalled his companions, but he said nothing to them of the private matters which the dying man had confided to him. Gideon Spilett now watched the captain with extreme care. It was evident that he was no longer sustained by his moral energy, which had lost the power of reaction against his physical weakness. 
The day closed without change. The colonists did not quit the Nautilus for a moment. Night arrived, although it was impossible to distinguish it from day in the cavern. Captain Nemo suffered no pain, but he was visibly sinking. His noble features, paled by the approach of death, were perfectly calm. Inaudible words escaped at intervals from his lips, bearing upon various incidents of his checkered career. Life was evidently ebbing slowly, and his extremities were already cold. Once or twice more he spoke to the colonists who stood around him, and smiled on them with that last smile which continues after death. At length, shortly after midnight, Captain Nemo by a supreme effort succeeded in folding his arms across his breast, as if wishing in that attitude to compose himself for death. At one o'clock his glance alone showed signs of life. A dying light gleamed in those eyes once so brilliant. Then, murmuring the words, God and my country. He quietly expired. Cyrus Harding, bending low, closed the eyes of him who had once been the Prince Dakar, and was now not even Captain Nemo. Herbert and Pencroft sobbed aloud. Tears fell from Ayrton's eyes. Neb was on his knees by the reporter's side, motionless as a statue. Then Cyrus Harding, extending his hand over the forehead of the dead, said solemnly, May his soul be with God. Turning to his friends, he added, Let us pray for him whom we have lost. Some hours later the colonists fulfilled the promise made to the captain by carrying out his dying wishes. Cyrus Harding and his companions quitted the Nautilus, taking with them the only memento left them by their benefactor, the coffer which contained wealth amounting to millions. The marvelous saloon, still flooded with light, had been carefully closed. The iron door leading on deck was then securely fastened in such a manner as to prevent even a drop of water from penetrating to the interior of the Nautilus. The colonists then descended into the canoe, which was moored to the side of the submarine vessel. The canoe was now brought around to the stern. There, at the water-line, were two large stopcocks, communicating with the reservoirs employed in the submersion of the vessel. The stopcocks were opened, the reservoirs filled, and the Nautilus, slowly sinking, disappeared beneath the surface of the lake. But the colonists were yet able to follow its descent through the waves. The powerful light it gave forth lighted up the translucent water, while the cavern became gradually obscure. At length this vast effusion of electric light faded away, and soon after the Nautilus, now the tomb of Captain Nemo, reposed in its ocean bed. End of chapter.